The endorsement of Huntington has created these blind spots in the officer corps where you have a revulsion to anything remotely considered political. What we found is that 50% of the cadets in the sample believed that having more retired general officers in the cabinet was good for the country. What may accomplish nonpartisanship may actually require overt action and commentary. Welcome to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. This is your producer, Captain Haziano. On this episode, we interviewed three leading scholars in the field of civil-military relations to discuss some of their upcoming research. Dr. Reese Brooks is the Alice Chalmers Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University, non-resident senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and also adjunct scholar at West Point's Modern War Institute. Dr. Heidi Urban is a retired U.S. Army colonel who is currently an adjunct associate professor in Georgetown University's Security Studies program and an adjunct scholar at West Point's Modern War Institute. She's also a West Point Social Sciences faculty alumni. And last but not least, we have Major Mike Robinson, an assistant professor of international affairs at West Point and an Army strategist. He received his Ph.D. from Stanford University, where his research focused on civil-military relations and partisan polarization. I sat down with the three of them to discuss our upcoming paper, which analyzes West Point cadets' attitudes towards topics such as traditional civil-military norms, partisanship, and the political activity of veterans and service members. Along the way, we also talked about the need to reevaluate the military's attempt to disengage from politics, the difference between an apolitical versus a non-partisan military, and what senior leaders need to be thinking about in the aftermath of the January 6th assault on the Capitol. As with every episode, the views expressed on this podcast are strictly those of the speakers. They should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any other government agency. All right. So, with that out of the way, hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. This is Captain Haziano from the SOCH Podcast. It's my pleasure today to be with three distinguished scholars in the civil-military relations field. We have Dr. Risa Brooks from Marquette University. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you today. Dr. Heidi Urban from Georgetown University. Thanks, Haas, and thanks to Soch for having us. And Major Mike Robinson from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Great to be here as well. So jumping right into the questions. So the three of you have been working for some time now on a research project to measure how West Point cadets think about civil military norms, such as civilian control of the military and political nonpartisanship. So can you talk to us a little bit about the background behind this research? I mean, why focus on cadets? I think that one reason we were interested in surveying cadets was that, you know, they're at this moment of early socialization to becoming officers, right? And cadets are in an environment that's, you know, pretty immersive in terms of being exposed to different norms and different expectations about what that will mean. And so we wanted to see what were cadets thinking about what that meant in particular in these different domains that we evaluate in the survey. But we just thought it was a really good time to kind of, you know, assess that. I'd also add what we learned from cadets is actually transferable to the rest of the officer corps. We have this sense, probably a misperception, that cadets' understanding of professional norms is so nascent. In reality, it's a really good predictor of how the rest of the officer corps may look. 
And one of the things that we found um, in our research is that there's a pretty good misperception that there's a lot of formal, consistent um, socialization that happens throughout an officer's career. There's a lot of informal socialization that happens for sure throughout an officer's career. But as we've done a quick survey of professional military education, it turns out some of the most consistent and purposeful socialization in a formal way happens at service academies. And so it just amplifies for us why it's so important to look at cadets early conceptualization of what does it mean to be professional and how do these norms start to set in. So is it potentially correct to say that for many Army officers, um, the civ mill norms that they're taught at West Point might be the most exposure that they have to these concepts? Maybe not getting as much in some of the other professional education courses that we can expect officers to go through? Yeah, I'll just offer from my own experience, too. And, and it's not to malign by any means other institutions of professional military education. PME has a tough battle on curriculum all the time. And, and I know that uh, professors at all of these institutions get a little bit weary of a lot of critics saying, you know what you really need to teach is, is X, Y, and Z. But I think the reality is exactly that. Some of the most consistent uh, uh, professional norm socialization in an academic setting happens at places like West Point. And it's why we were so interested in looking at this. As a War College graduate, I think perhaps we had about an hour's worth of formal civil military um, relations uh, topic in a year's long worth of curriculum. And a lot of that is in recognition that we can't expect PME to address all aspects of professionalism. Um, but I think we can say this is one topic that merits a, a relook. Um, and so I applaud West Point, um, especially the SOCH department, for caring so much about this and for giving it so much thoughtful attention. Uh, but I think it's probably one of the you know, derivative findings that we have is probably need a relook across other PME institutions as well. Yeah. And you know, especially given the kinds of politically consequential situations that many lieutenants and young officers can sometimes find themselves in, I'm sure there are many who would also argue that the socialization needs to start earlier, not later. I mean, it would make sense for this education to be taking place for cadets or lieutenants during their initial officer training and not, you know, in their mid-career training, maybe at intermediate level education or staff college or, you know, et cetera. And we actually hear that from senior leaders. I mean, General Votel, some of you may be acquainted with him, right? Former CENTCOM commander, um, very esteemed person. I did a podcast with him and he talked about, you know, sort of reflecting in this really candid way that he hadn't had a lot of exposure to civil military relations, despite the fact that the job he was doing really required and, and he would have really benefited from that exposure. Um, and I think we've heard that from other senior leaders too, um, as well. And so, you know, the fact that they're reflecting on that says to us that we need to help communicate the importance of these issues early on, and not just one time, sort of throughout an officer's education at different levels in different ways. So going back to the research then, uh, you know, so how does your team go about trying to measure this? Right? I mean, how, do you, how does one go about trying to measure professionalism or internalization of nonpartisanship? 
So there are a couple of different quantitative and qualitative ways we tried to approach this. Obviously, what we said at the head of the podcast was that the reason we wanted to look at cadets in particular is because we think they're in this particularly sensitive phase in their socialization to key civil military norms that we think kind of getting a core sample of what that community looks like might help us get an understanding of what the larger officer community more emblematically would look like, uh, particularly since we're using this assumption that they only get so many check-ins over the course of their career to get a refresher on the sort of classical education of, of civil military norms. So we went about this a couple of different ways. One was through a, a battery of different um, just standard Likert scare type questions where we ask them about their level of agreement or disagreement with, with a variety of claims or uh, or statements about the policymaking process, about the balance between civilian and military input to policy. Um, we asked them a, 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 another assorted questions about their, their sensitivity to the overlap between military figures and partisan political activity, about their basically their level of, of tolerance for uh, for instance, you know, retired military officers serving in uh, political appointments or, uh, you, you know, using a military audience for overtly partisan political speeches and things of that nature. Uh, so in, in addition to those types of questions, we also asked them to uh, rank order um, six different characterizations of what professionalism meant to them. Among these things were uh, pretty standard uh, traditional characterizations of military professionalism from following orders to uh, subordinating one's personal concerns to that of the organization, to protecting national security, uh, but also to more um, technocratic definitions of professionalism, right? That they had a, that professionalism could be defined as their having possessing a subject matter expertise that was purely material uh, rather than normative. So uh, end to end, the, the direct asking of those questions and that rank ordering item within the uh, the survey instrument allowed us to get a, a good understanding of how cadets conceptualize professionalism as a, as a future military officer uh, and what the length and breadth of that term means to them. Part of our survey is sort of linking in with a broader sort of set of scholarship about norms and norm robustness and socialization processes that occur in in all different contexts, in international relations, um, scholarship, for example, they talk about that a lot. One of the key ideas from that literature is that the one way to know whether a norm is robust, whether socialization is occurring, is to look at what people say about it, you know, sort of discursively evaluate what are they saying. So I think the survey is an attempt to sort of say, well, what do cadets actually tell us about you know, what they think about these, you know, aspects of civil military relations norms. And so, you know, our, so sort of conceptually, that's how we're fitting into the sort of broader inquiry about norms and norm socialization. So what did the survey say about cadets and their socialization of civil military norms? One thing that we found that was very positive is that the cadets in large numbers across the board felt that it wasn't appropriate to sort of air their political views or their grievances on social media. And I think what's reassuring about that is it means that efforts to actually communicate that are really successful and that norm socialization isn't that hard if you kind of figure out how to do it in a way, or at least that, that piece of it. I think some of the other findings that we had are a little more concerning, and I'll, I'll just bring up another and then pass it to my colleagues. I think one of them that I'm really intrigued by is this question about 
you know, is it okay to talk informally about politics at work? Sort of what I think of as in my mind is sort of water cooler talk. And there, the responses were much higher that cadets felt in much greater numbers that it was okay to sort of casually talk about work. And why I think that's important is that if we think about professionalism and what it really means, it means that in the workplace in particular, you're sort of suborning your other identities, your political identities to what it means to do that job in the moment. I think this is true for military officers. It's also true for professors. I think it's true for anybody that's part of a profession is that that's your singular identity. And so that if you're in the workplace and you feel that it's okay to sort of talk about politics in this casual way, it means that you're not completely inhabiting what it means to be a professional in that moment. The other thing that I would add, um, you know, Michael described the different batteries of questions that we asked, and a lot of it is testing to see if cadets and to what extent cadets adhere to the traditional Huntingtonian vision of civil military relations. Now, the, the three of us are not endorsing that as the ideal state, right? But nonetheless, we acknowledge that uh, Huntington's sense of objective control and his civil military norms, for better or for worse, guide the officer corps today. And they are that dominant tendency. And one of the things that we found is that there's fairly good evidence that the idea of Huntington's uh, separate spheres and division of labor, this respect for the military's autonomy because they're a profession, all of that tends to resonate, at least to some degree, with cadets. We're not quite sure that the other half of Huntington's equation, this idea of staying out of politics, resonates to the same extent. And so this provides, I think, um, some really interesting takeaways and a lot of opportunities for future research. Do we see a break in, op in the officer corps' you know, adherence to Huntingtonian professionalism, where I buy into the autonomy bit, I buy into the fact that there's a separation of spheres and I should be respected for my autonomy, but I'm not so sold on this idea that we've got to be separate from partisan politics. And that's concerning and it speaks to these different loyalties and identities, obviously, that we know uh, those in the profession have, but it certainly offers lots of opportunity to dig into this, I think, in future research too. Uh, yeah, one thing I'll add to to uh, what Reese and I have already noted about some of the findings that we came up with was uh, how this reflects how cadets as as the next cohort of, of military officers see themselves within the larger civil military political machine, the, the as sort of cogs in the policymaking process. Uh, and one of the the ways this kind of manifested in, in a particularly salient way, given recent events, was their perception about uh, political appointees. Uh, particularly with regards to military experience for the Secretary of Defense. So, uh, Reese and Heidi and I, uh, you know, we have uh, twin pieces talking about this in a specific context over the recent nomination of uh, retired General Lloyd Austin for Secretary of Defense in the Biden administration. But, but we've, what we found is that 50% of the cadets in the sample uh, believed that having more retired general officers in the cabinet was good for the country, compared to only 11% who disagreed with that statement. Uh, on top of it, we found that 57% of the sample thought that the Secretary of Defense should have had prior military experience in order to be respected in that job. 
Uh, now we've kind of talked about this at length that we think this is this is a new generation of military officers whose principal socializing exposure to the Secretary of Defense as a as a position has come from now back to back presidential administrations leading off their their cabinet selections with retired four star uh, military officers as their nominee to head the Pentagon. Uh, and that uh, when we consider that maybe politicians may consider that now table stakes for, for uh, qualifications for that job, if the junior military officers also come to see it as an expectation, uh, now both sides of the equation have been spoken for now, civilians who are in charge of appointing that position and military officers who are going to be uh, subordinated to it are both now now coming to expect that, that that position be filled by a retired military officer. And and I'll allow uh, Reese and Heidi to, to talk more in depth about the implications of that, but we definitely think that, that it chafes against a a long-held and um, a tradition of civil military normative structures that we do not have retired military officers leading uh, institutions like the Pentagon. And so this was a particularly interesting observation from our findings as well. What does it mean to say that retired officers should be in the cabinet? And why is that so striking? I think because you're not talking about a specific individual who might have had some experience a command in the military that might prepare that person to do a particular job, right? You're talking about this abstract idea that military service alone inherently renders one more qualified to serve in a political position that could be completely unrelated to national security, education, transportation. And that is a really striking sort of sociological phenomenon. I think the other thing about the cadets, many of them endorsing the idea that the Secretary of Defense should have military experience to be respected, is that term. We're not talking about military experience to sort of have more technical background. The question is framed with respected, right? That's about legitimacy. That's a much more profound response than, um, and, and I think, disturbing response from my perspective that someone who is inherently according to the national security architecture of this country supposed to be a civilian should have to have military experience to be respected suggests a pretty skewed understanding of of what the intent of that legislation that established that structure was what it was supposed to be accomplishing yeah, and, and I would add uh, insights like this, I think, are really helpful in a broader debate and understanding of civilian control and the idea, the support for, for strong civilian control of the armed forces. I think if we were to poll West Point cadets or military officers of any rank and grade and you just simply ask the question, do you believe in the principle of civilian control? Of course resoundingly they would say yes. So you need to shift the frame, I think, a little bit. And, and where is there resistance to strong civilian control or skepticism of it or cynicism towards it? It's not that there's going to be a rejection, an outright rejection of civilian control, but there's going to be some suspicion of it and skepticism. And we can probe for that in all sorts of different ways. And other research has found uh, being cynical um, of civilian elected leaders or skeptical of uh, one party over the other, all of this ultimately 
or threats to civilian control, not in the sense that it's an outright rejection of it, but it's somehow questioning the nature of purely civilian control. And we see this when there is such a preference for, well, military experience must ma make that element of civilian control better. And that's certainly from a normative standpoint, something that we worry about both for Secretary of Defense and this idea that to be respected as commander in chief, you needed to have served um, in the military as well. And so again, do we think that there are real um, genuine threats to civilian control within the uniformed military today? No, uh, but it's it's reframing the question and looking at where might there be skepticism of it or slight resistance. And I think that's got some some real um, opportunities for continued research and, and discussions in professional forums too, to sensitize officers to, well, let's really talk about what civilian control means in practice. With regards to, you know, the denomination of General Austin, does this kind of idea that, hey, military matters are best left to people with military experience, I mean, is this one outcome of what we hear of as like the growing civil military gap? This idea that like, you know, civilians don't really understand the military as well anymore. And you've got fewer and fewer people who've had exposure to the military since the conversion to the all-volunteer force. Maybe the survey shows that cadets or those in the military might feel a little bit, um, you know, hesitant or skeptical, as you noted, about some aspects of civilian control. Is there some hesitancy maybe on the part of civilians to feel like they can tell military personnel how national security policy should work? I'm not sure that it's a lack of confidence to tell the military what to do. I do think that civilians can buy into this idea that the military should run the military as well. Um, and we see that in the American population that, you know, there are, there's evidence that, you know, Americans are perfectly happy to have the military, you know, in charge of the Pentagon as they see it. You know, they don't, need, they don't, may not recognize that it's actually a retired military officer. Um, and so, so I think that, you know, it, it's not, you know, who's endorsing that idea comes from different directions. I'll just add, you know, I think that we're still puzzling through what some of these things mean and and how to interpret them. But I recall recently I had a comment that's made me think about what the Secretary of Defense response might mean. And this woman said to me, you know, it's about representation. It's about um, seeing somebody that represents us in that position. And I think that that's an interesting kind of take this idea that this person will be an advocate on behalf of the institution. It also reflects a really profound misunderstanding of what civilian control is, right? It isn't about having a place at the table for the military. It's about the civilian elected leadership translating its political goals into military policy and military activity. And so I think we have a lot of work to do to try to socialize, I think as Heidi said so well, you know, and explain what is civilian control and actually unpack that. And I think once we start to do that, some of these attitudes about get, you know, respecting, you know, the Secretary of Defense if they've had military service and uh, related things will start to, you know, cadets and other officers will start to move away from that um, if they understand what civilian control really is. So much of the debate over uh, Lloyd Austin's nomination to be Secretary of Defense, just as it was with Jim Mattis's 
uh, four years ago, started to crystallize on this time span. How many years do you need out of uniform to be considered a true civilian? And unfortunately, that clouds out all of the more important aspects of the debate that Risa talked about, because the time frame is arbitrary. And there's so much debate of should it go back to 10? Do we need to have a supermajority in Congress to uh, approve a waiver in the future? But by allowing the debate to crystallize on this arbitrary timeline of what does it take to truly become a civilian post-retirement, it, it obscures the broader discussion of why do we think it's best to have the answer to the question of who should guard the guardians, a retired guardian? So to how do we go back and have that as a, as a base of discussion and not let it just come down to this timeline? And I think, Haas, your, your broader question of how do we get to this point, some of it is the public, and I'm not by any means the first to say this, I've just, I just use it a lot. The public looks at the military with equal parts, ignorance and reverence. And so that sets the stage for politicians and elected leaders to capitalize on that. And we see it, it happens on both sides of the aisle. It's not that just one party does this over the other. Until we kind of recenter that, it's going to be an ongoing challenge, I think. So I'm going to take this back a little bit. So uh, Dr. Dr. Urban, you mentioned before that none of the three of you are necessarily endorsing this idea of like Huntingtonian norms as the ideal, correct state that civil relations should be at. But I mean, what specifically are some of the issues that you might have with the implementation of Huntingtonian norms as the gold standard? Well, you'll definitely want to get um, one of the nation's preeminent experts uh, thoughts on this with with Dr. Brooks, because her work on this past year, both I think her article in International Security, as I've said to many, became an instant classic and should be required reading for all officers, regardless of service. I think for me, it's this idea that, and I'll use Reese's terminology, the endorsement of Huntington has created these blind spots in the officer corps where you have a revulsion to anything remotely considered political. Um, and yet there are all sorts of political things that the military by its nature is involved in on a daily basis. And I'll also acknowledge many of others that have written on this too, that why is it that the word political has such a negative um, undertone in the United States military? Think about it of when even in just um, nonpartisan connotations, if an officer refers to somebody else, oh, you know, that guy, he's really political, it has such a pejorative connotation in our military today. And I know it's in the broader society too, but uh, politics is about who gets what, when, and how. There's nothing necessarily value, negatively value-laden in that. Um, but that connotation means that I... I want to keep anything political at arm's length. And at the same time, I assume I'm a professional because I am. I take this oath. And so we have this uneasy uh, state where we know partisanship we should stay out of, but we don't really examine, I think, in a, in a very thorough way, uh, the nature of that. But I know Risa can say it much better than I can. Maybe I'll just reflect on where that idea of the blind spot first occurred to me, because it didn't come from some academic abstract place. It came from actually sitting in audiences with 
senior military, former, really accomplished military officers kind of talking about things, including in a couple of conferences at West Point. And I would sit there and listen, and I would hear this sort of apolitical mantra and, you know, sort of invocation of that idea. And then there would be all of this sort of uh, political flourishes in the comments they were making, you know, not overt statements, but it was clearly a partisan messaging kind of informing the framing of some of the things that they were saying. And I would think, do you not know how political you're being right now? And I just found it was so strange. And and there was and it seemed like there was a shield. Like how could you say to this person without insulting their character that you know, by the way, what you were saying was not completely nonpartisan. You were actually and and I don't think that's un you know, so odd. I mean, we're all creatures of what we read and think. So, but the fact that there was this unwillingness or inability to acknowledge that was really troubling because that means it can't be examined and reflected upon and dealt with because it is fundamentally contrary, especially in a public space like that, to be using that kind of language. It almost sounds like to be nonpartisan is almost like an element of expertise that also needs to be developed. But the problem with the Huntingtonian construct is that it's incorporated as part of the identity. So therefore, because you are a soldier, you are a professional instead of one of your responsibilities as a soldier is to develop and cultivate this apolitical or you know, nonpartisan, which I'll, I'll get into another question on, but right, like that you need to develop that skill to be nonpartisan. Yeah, and the thing that I would add to that, you're exactly right, is where officers can be educated and trained on this is in the application of an abstract idea to real world events, right? And when we only talk in the abstract, you can have that point where, where Risa acknowledges these blind spots that exist. They don't recognize the dissonance in between the abstract that I profess to adhere to and then the conduct of my actions and behavior or statements and so forth. The other thing that I would add is a pure embrace of, of Huntingtonian norms ultimately creates an officer corps and senior military leaders especially who are horribly uncomfortable with anything relating to politics and also probably not being really confident in their ability to distill what is political from partisan. And so the net effect is to stick to their knitting and focus on kind of core competencies and not get into topics that might be misconstrued one way or the other, but some that time they miss an opportunity to clarify. Uh, they, they miss lots of opportunities to constantly denounce partisanship in the ranks simply because they have such an aversion and a discomfort with, with even talking about it. So this ties into the other question I had, which is to ask about the discussion in the Civ Millfield right now over the use of the term apolitical versus nonpartisan. What's the real difference between these two words and why are they distinct from one another? Why should we treat them as two different concepts? Sometimes this is characterized by by spectators as some sort of academic navel gazing or that we're splitting hairs and creating terminologies or you know, where none existed before. And, and really nothing could be further from the truth, that there is an important distinction between these two terms. And, and 
And Risa and Heidi have both written at length about the importance of making this distinction, as a lot of our other colleagues in, in the civil-military relations subfield have, uh, which is, you know, Teresa's point <clears throat> about the idea that there's this cognitive dissonance that that emerges when one has put into your identity that you are apolitical, and therefore nothing you can engage in uh, is political by nature, right? But but military officers and the very nature of their work is perhaps the most political activity one can engage in. It is the the execution manifestation of, of foreign policy, right? Um, so the difference between the apolitical and the partisan uh, is an important distinction that we make because what we're talking about is one of the chief challenges to the stability of civil military norms moving forward is this concept of politicization. Which in, which in addition to being a very difficult word to say repeatedly, right, is also one that kind of slips past the discussion, right? And when we talk about politicization, we're typically talking about two possible patterns. One is the internal and the other is the external. And so the internal would be activities the military institution itself engages in that can put itself in, in, in precarious political waters or partisan political waters. Uh, and then the other is the external, which are things that are done to the military institution that can achieve the same effect. And both are problematic. And uh, we've seen both over the course of, uh, of decades, but really have seen a sharp increase in, in that pattern of behavior over the last couple of years. Uh, and the reason why it's important to draw the distinction between the apolitical and the nonpartisan is because uh, it is particularly the nonpartisanship norm that is being attacked when we talk about politicization of the military. So when you think about um, you know, highly controversial military pardons of, of suspected or convicted war criminals, when you think about uh, the border wall deployment, when you think about, um, you know, military iconography that's kind of brought into partisan political discussions. Um, you know, you think about, uh, you know, high profile news stories surrounding uh, Colonel Vinman or Captain Crozier, right? These kind of, these kind of stories brought uh, you know, the military institution into very close proximity to partisan political calculations, not not the political that we would use in the sort of sanitized way, right, where we're saying like, it is political for you to engage in fighting and winning your nation's wars on behalf of the national security apparatus. We're talking about more tribal uh, considerations uh, that are that are now bringing the military into that discussion, which can be dangerous. And 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 it links back to the original point that that Risa brings up in her IS article, which is it allows you to smuggle in partisan belief structures because well I'm I'm apolitical, so nothing I engage in therefore is problematic, right? But but that's obviously untrue. <laughs> we are inherently political actors when we talk about military officers, and so that that distinction between the apolitical and the partisan is important. Um, the, to say military officers are political is not a problem, right? They, they are political, they engage in political behavior. Uh, to say that they are partisan is a problem, and that's what we are constantly trying to avoid, is to start using the language of uh, partisan politics when we refer to military actors. You have to engage with politics, understanding the country's domestic politics, understanding the military's relationship as an institution to domestic politics, understanding the politics of allies and adversaries, understanding intra-governmental politics. One has to understand all of those things to actually be a good advisor to civilians. Because you, if not, there is just a big vacuum in the sort of creation of strategy. And so, this sort of idea of apolitical throws out the baby with the bathwater. There are essential pieces to thinking, political thinking, and that's sort of the term that I like to use, that you need. 
and about sort of the nonpartisan piece, you know, if we really think about what does that mean, that means trying to minimize one's impact on a partisan debate or on an electoral outcome, right? It means trying to figure out what is the, new, the most neutral space in relation to that. What, what one of the real problems with the apolitical framing is that that has come to mean that the way to be neutral is to always be passive and silent. In fact, every situation varies and what may accomplish nonpartisanship may actually require overt action and commentary or in some circumstances, not all circumstances, but there needs to be this agility, this ability to reflect and think about what does this moment demand from me so that I can stay as far out of that debate as possible. And staying completely out may not be possible, but try to sort of strive for that minimization. And so I think minimizing your impact is a good framing to think about what you're going to do as an officer. How can I accomplish that as much as possible? And one thing I'd add, there's a pitfall here, another pitfall uh, for the uniformed military. And it goes back to a distinction Michael made. I really like the way he, uh, he, he describes the nature of politicization as being both internal and external. The military has a responsibility and whether it becomes politi allows itself to become politicized. And certainly uh, civilian politicians take steps to politicize the military. There's a pitfall for the uniformed military to take stock of recent events and, and conclude, boy, oh boy, uh, it's those civilian politicians who are constantly trying to politicize us and miss an opportunity for some introspection and self-awareness to realize where is the military culpable in its own politicization. And if we continue to fail to come to grips with, I think, some harmful discourse on social media by members of the profession and by uh, some retired flag officers, certainly not all, right? There are what, 7,500 estimated living retired flag officers and a handful can, can set a pretty bad name for them, unfortunately. But addressing that component too, this has to be a, a, an area where uh, the institution comes to grip with its own culpability uh, in politicization as well. So that'll segue to the last question that I'd like to ask. One of the findings you mentioned from your research notes that you know there's a significant number of cadets who seem to acknowledge the importance of Huntingtonian apoliticism, but are nonetheless apt to favor partisanship over what these professional norms would dictate. While this is probably harmless in the vast majority of situations, um, you know, we recently saw what could happen when such motivated norms are taken to the extreme. In the aftermath of the political violence on January the 6th, we're hearing more and more about how military veterans and service members participated in the rush on the Capitol. Uh, just yesterday, NPR ran a story noting how almost 20% of the individuals charged over their involvement in the Capitol storming had some kind of military history or connection. Um, you know, a particular concerning example is that of a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who was photographed in the Senate chamber wearing body armor. You know, I mean, how do we ensure that our current and future officers are not crossing that line? I'll take just one stab at, and I agree. Some really concerning things that we as an institution have to come to grips with over the coming months and years. 
Uh, we can't bottle that incident up as an aberration and to think that we don't have some ties and some, some exploration here. But one thing I would offer is we have to get to a point where the commitment to broad professional ethics exceeds anybody's individual partisan loyalties um, and and any other any other other individual loyalties, right? The whole idea of of being joining this profession, um, we give up all sorts of parts of our individual lives in deference to a broader institutional ethic. Um, and what this, I think, series of events and and even broader and longer before than the events of the insurrection demonstrate is we can't take that socialization to this professional ethic for granted. We can't assume that a couple blocks of instruction on your oath to the constitution is gonna last you for a 20 to 30 year career and beyond. I, I think back to General Milley's comments in his remarkable apology following the events of um, the Lafayette Square photo op, where he said being apolitical might be the most important thing we do on a daily basis. And if that's the case, we would think that that needs to be greatly cared for and constantly taught more than just these abstract ideas, but truly relating it in a way to how do you apply this in your everyday lives uh, as an officer who swears an oath. Um, and so again, I'm encouraged by a lot of those efforts that happen at places like West Point, um, but it is it is the beginning, not something that should last you throughout your career. And, and we just assume um, that it's intact and strong and requires no reinforcement. Heidi, I articulated that so well. I think it's something that all three of us feel incredibly strongly about. And I think that's the, if there's one message that comes from this research, it's what she's just said. We need to be doing this all the time and to be applying it in a practical way to teach not just the abstraction, but the, you know, the experience of being apolitical. I want to just add one thing about why I think it's difficult to know that there were some folks, a few with active service, some retired that were involved in those events. And that is because they take the oath to the constitution. Now, not every ordinary American does that, right? That's a really significant moment, an important piece of being, of serving in the military. And so, you know, what does it mean to have violated that constitution? That's a really disturbing thing. You know, what 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 is going on within those individuals that they get to the point where they don't recognize their actions as such? Um, and I guess to add to the socialization piece, you know, what what needs to be a part of that? I think we really need to look at what the oath to the constitution means. There's a lot of use of the word constitution. What's in that constitution? That constitution lays out a framework of democratic institutions. It is not a value neutral document. It's a structure of democracy. Therefore, if you are taking an oath to the constitution, you are taking an oath to democratic institutions. And that seems so obvious, but I'm not sure that connection is always really being made. 
the the images of the milit former military or or it, it seems like in some cases active military being involved in, in what occurred on the 6th of January is incredibly troubling. And in addition to the security concerns, we should always be asking ourselves, you know, how is it possible that so so many of our countrymen could have been led so frightfully astray when it came to the events that we observed there? When it comes to the military's role, it, it, I think it's going to require some serious introspection. Uh, if there's one thing that our findings here have kind of indicated, it's that the people that come into the military service do not come from some hermetically sealed subset of the population that is politically sterile, right? There, There is not a little pocket uh, of America somewhere where people come in with no political sensibilities when they take their oath at 18 years old. Uh, what we found is that cadets, just like anyone else, are they're, they're people. Uh, military service members signing up to basic training are people. They're just like everyone else. Um, they're going to have political sensibilities and philosophies when they come into military service. and. And even more than that, it's whatever normative uh, structure or, or education we'd like to imbue our service members with does not supplant that pre-existing belief structure. It, if anything, it augments it, it mingles with it. Uh, and what we're observing now is, is sort of the output there, which is that people are complex. Uh, the military is going to have to engage in some real um, self-inspection when it comes to, to looking at extremism within its ranks, obviously, and that's something that they've already declared an intention to do. Um, but this is also the function of civilian oversight, uh, which is something that, you know, the military, uh, sometimes we have conversations about military self-policing and the idea that two civilian branches of government um, have have control over the, uh, the military institution usually doesn't even enter the conversation, but we do, right? We have an executive and the commander in chief. We have a legislature that controls, you know, budgetary and war-making authority. And I think uh, this is an opportunity for the military to really start looking at itself and making sure that we're not pr providing a, a recruitment pool or a feeder mechanism to, to violent groups on the tail end of service. Well, thanks so much for your comments. It's about all the time that we have for today. just want to say, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again so much, Dr. Brooks, Dr. Urban, and Major Mike Robinson. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Soch Podcast. Be sure to check out our guests' published works, some of which are included in the show notes. If you liked what you heard, you should subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever streaming service you're using. While you're at it, please also consider leaving a five-star review. If you have any comments, suggestions, or even critiques, email us at socheresearchlab at westpoint.edu. That's S-O-S-H, research lab at westpoint.edu. We're always looking for new episode ideas from listeners, social alumni, and friends of the social department at West Point. Special thanks to the West Point Band for allowing us to use their music. This is Captain Yano, signing out. See you again soon.